Thank you so much for joining me today. I am Yetunde and I talk to people about their journey into tech. So hello, today I'm speaking with Scott about educating other developers. So Scott, why did you decide to get into tech and were you always interested in it? Well, I don't think I decided. I mean, you know how people say they decide to get into tech. Maybe tech decided to bring me in. My fifth grade teacher uh, said that I was a troublemaker and mm -hmm. I was always causing problems and I was, uh, they needed to keep me focused and there was an Apple II computer in the computer lab and she let me borrow it. She let me use the computer on the weekends to keep me from causing trouble in the streets. And that gave me a reason to stay home on the weekends instead of going out and causing trouble. Yeah. So when I, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but I assume you, you want to open the thing up, like whatever it is. If the toaster is broken, you open the toaster. If the computer is broken, you open the computer. So I opened the computer up and I saw all the parts and I became fascinated with that. So if she had not let me use that Apple II, I don't know what I would be doing. I don't think I would have, you know, maybe tech would have found me in another way, but that one teacher taking a chance on me and letting me borrow the computer for the weekend was the, the moment that I started in tech. Wow. So do you still take things apart? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I talk about, I talk a lot in my talks about the difference between driving an automatic shift car and a mm -hmm. stick shift. You know, an automatic shift or even taking an Uber, you go from point A to point B. But with yeah. a stick shift, you really know how the car works. You know how gears work. You feel connected to the car. So if you take something apart, even if it's a toaster, you really feel differently about your toast because you know how it got made, you know? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I take everything apart, everything I can. That's awesome. Uh, so what challenges did you have while you were learning tech? Challenges I had was getting experience. It seems really easy to get knowledge and then you put that knowledge on a resume and then someone says, oh, this is great. You know all these things, but you have no experience. And then it's like, well, how do I get a job without experience or how do I get experience without a job? A lot of people face that issue. So yeah. how, how did you get past it? Well, I think that we have to, when we make our resumes, we make our CV, we have to toot our own horns. And it's hard to talk about yourself. It's hard to say, I'm great, I made this. Uh, I think the thing that we can do is make side projects yeah. and maybe make them a little bit bigger than they are really, you know what I mean? So someone, for example, I was at a, a college event yesterday in Austin and the student said, well, my portfolio is mostly projects I did for school. Mm. And I was like, well, but what are you passionate about? Well, I'm passionate about my church. Oh, I'm passionate about my nephew's little league or I'm passionate about my community or my mosque or my whatever. So I said, well, why don't you make a website for your church? Why don't you make a scheduling app for your nephew's little league? You know, if you like woodworking or Legos or Xbox, why don't you make a catalog or an app for that? And then put that on your resume because then you've done community outreach, you've done volunteer work, you've done open source, you've done a real project. And the most important part is keep it up. 
like if you have a blog or if you have a podcast like you do, you learn about keeping it up. It goes down. It's like, oh, my website's down. I got to go figure it out and put it back up. Then it's like you're running a business. So then on your resume, you put all of these things that you built and they feel more real than if they were just a school project. So that's what I did. I, I, I faked it a little bit, but I took all my side projects and made them like they were like little businesses. Yeah. And it, you like experience a lot of things, not just tech. You also have like a bit of uh, soft skills, develop some soft skills. Yeah, because you're going and getting your um, requirements, right? Yeah. So if you, build a, if you build a website for your church, you don't just build it without asking them what they want, right? Yeah. Then you have to communicate, um, iterate on improvements and like that. Yeah. Uh, so did you mostly self-learn or did you go to school for computer science? Um, I did both, I would say, but I, I thought I was going to go to a big, like a good school, but I didn't have the money. So I went to a, what's called a community college, like a two-year school. Yeah. I went to Portland Community College and I did not computer science, but I did software engineering. And I, I believe that the difference is computer science is like the theory of computers and compilers. Yes. And software engineering is the practice of shipping and making software. So I learned about unit testing and, uh, you know, and scrum and, and, and uh, project management as well as writing software debugging and production while computer science focuses more on the theoretical. Uh, and then I transferred from there to a state school, but it took me 11 years to oh, get wow. a four year degree. And one of the things that I found out was that after seven years, if you don't get your four year degree, your credits start falling off the other side. Oh, wow. So, Seven years, eight years in, I got an email from the college that said, you have to take writing 121 again. And I was like, why? I was like, well, but you took it seven years ago and you need to make sure you still know it. So <laughs> I had to go to the dean and make this deal. And I ended up teaching C Sharp at the school while I was going to the school. And the agreement was, as long as I was a professor, they would let me also be a student and they would let me keep my, my credit. So I started college in 1992, and I graduated in 2003. <laughs> yeah? I was working the whole time. Oh, uh, yeah, that's why. Yeah, I went to school for computer science also. And then I thought I was going to be more programming. I felt, I felt like I did a lot of theory. Yep, yep. And then, then it's like, what do you do with that theory, right? Yeah. And you end up learning software engineering probably now at your job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I currently freelance, so I, I basically still have to self-learn. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing that's fun, though, about software is that we are always self-learning. Yeah. You know, I met somebody who had a PhD from MIT, and me from a community college, I mean, think about the feeling of imposter syndrome. I'm meeting a person who has a PhD in computer science from MIT. But then they told me it was from, like, 1985, and I'm sure the fundamentals are the same, but I'm pretty sure all the languages that they program on, except for C, are different. Yeah. So they have to always self-learn. Otherwise, that PhD won't mean as much 30, 40 years later. That's true. So how do you think the tech industry has changed since you joined? Well, I hope that we're moving towards uh, a more inclusive 
tech industry. When I went to school, it was probably there were 30 kids in the class and there were maybe five women. Mm-hmm. I think that we're, you know, we're hopefully all changing, changing that, making sure that tech is for everybody. Um, a lot of the things that have changed are like memory management. We didn't have garbage collectors when I started, so we had to manage our own memory and we had very little, very little memory. Yeah. I, wrote a, I wrote a program for the Palm Pilot. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Palm Pilot. <laughs> yeah. I, no, no. no, it's like a tiny, remember before cell phones, we had a called a PDA, Portable Digital Assistant. Yeah. A little tiny black and white device. It only had 4K of memory. Wow. So 4,096 bytes. And now I feel like everybody doesn't even care about memory. They just like, woohoo, just make all the memory they want and they don't even think about cleaning up, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I think scale has changed a lot. Yeah, because I think what uh, cell phones have more memory than what was used to send people to the moon. So. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, I'm on a computer that uh, has the same amount of memory as my phone. But I feel like... Uh, Software is getting more diverse also. Um, my, my class didn't have too many people, but on Twitter I've seen a lot of developers, mm-hmm. uh, people of color who are developers. Yeah, I think that if we're not careful, um, we can catch ourselves in a bubble and yeah. we can end up hanging out just with people who look like us. I also think that when we say diversity, it can be a coded language and we need to watch for what that means. You know, we also want to include older people, disabled people, veterans, because diversity can be a diversity of thought and where people grew up, you know, uh, Africans are not African-Americans. They have different perspective. Like we say, the veterans, older people. I was on a team actually meeting with a team earlier and it, well, it was mostly, um, It was not super diverse from a color perspective. They had a 60-year-old programmer and some 25-year-old programmers. And apparently they had a lot of conflict. So I like to say that I think that that, um, technology should look like the mall. Like, you know, when you go to the mall and it just looks like everybody's here? If your team looks like the mall, then it's probably a good team. That's true. Uh, So I noticed you blogged a lot. Uh, Why did you decide to stop blogging? Um, I don't like sending email because I feel like it wastes my keystrokes, right? So I feel like, like maybe, you know, we talked before and maybe we'll talk after and like, let's say that you'll send me a really good question. I'll be like, oh, oh, that was a great question, but I'm not going to give you 2000 of my keystrokes because then it's just going to go one to one, right? So instead I will write a blog post. And then I will send you a link to the blog post. And then it, my, I feel like my keystrokes work harder. So I started blogging so I didn't have to send so many emails. Because then if the next person sends an email with a question, I have like basically made my blog into a fact. It's the frequently asked questions of my life. And then I just send them a link, right? Yeah. So I think you should, everyone should have a blog. Everyone should have a blog. No excuses. Anytime you type, where is the keystrokes going? They should go into GitHub or documentation or SharePoint or anywhere but email because email is where all these thoughts and ideas will go to die. But if you put them on a blog, then people will um, 
be able to Google them later. Yeah, that's true. Definitely smart. I was someone was mentioning on Twitter that they wish they had a lot of like the projects they did in their twenties yeah. right now because they have no evidence because they didn't uh, document it or blog about it. Exactly, exactly. And another example about documenting stuff is how many times have you found a problem or a bug and you pounded your head against the monitor for an hour and then you figured it out, but then you didn't do anything about it. You didn't tell anyone. Yeah. Like, you know, you improved, but maybe if you could just take five minutes and write a paragraph and put it somewhere, Stack Overflow, anywhere, just anywhere where the next person could find it. Because have you ever Googled a problem, found another person with the same problem, then you look in the forum and at the bottom, the person says, figured it out. Yeah. But then they didn't tell you how. That's awful. Like we need to spread the, the knowledge around. Yeah, definitely help people, especially uh, newbies who are looking for help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, do you decide uh, what to blog about from people emailing you or is there any other methods you use to decide what to blog? Um, there's two things that I mostly blog about. There's people who just ask a question, but then there's stuff in life. Like just if you do work, anything that you do on a regular basis, you think about the other people who might also be doing it. You have to have really extreme empathy. Like mm-hmm. I set up some unit testing and I got it really working nicely. And I said, oh, this is nice. My unit tests are working well. And I go, huh, I wonder if I could write something short that would help other people with their unit tests. Now, the problem is you look at all the other great blogs in the world and you say, oh, man, this person wrote the best unit test blog. What am I going to say that's new? And then you don't blog. But what I think about instead is my journey is unique and my perspective is unique. So there's room on the internet for my perspective and there's room on the internet for your perspective, right? There's always room for one more podcast or one more blog. So I blog about it anyway. And uh, hopefully just blogging about how I do stuff for my daily problems. You know, there's, there's, and I also think you shouldn't blog every day. It's too hard. I blog like two or three times a week, not too much. It's a marathon, right? You don't want to burn out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, everybody can blog, especially when uh, people who are learning a new topic because they're able to explain it in a way that maybe more experienced developers want to be able to explain it because uh, they can explain it in simpler terms. Mm. I think it's true that it's very much a gift to be able to come up with a good analogy. Yeah. You say, well, it's like this. And then you tell your analogy. And, and the, the older I get and the more experienced I get, I do realize I'm getting better at, at those analogies. But I also think everyone learns differently. I've seen some young programmers make amazing like doodles and cartoons to describe. Like, here's how TCP works and here's a cartoon. Yeah. or diagrams. So there's always room for a new way to teach something. That's true. Um, so do you have any advice for newbies that want to blog? Um, I would ask yourself what you want to get out of it. If you just need a place to blog, then go to WordPress and sign up for a WordPress blog or something, you know, basically anywhere but Medium. Um, and try to own your words. Make it somewhere that can't disappear. 
Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like the nice thing about hosting your own blog and your own domain, even though it costs a little bit more money, is that you can't really lose that data. You know, you got to back yeah. that stuff up. The other thing is, if it's not about the writing, if it's not about the blog, maybe it's about the act of putting a website up and keeping it up. Now, this is one of the bad things about technology right now. There's a barrier. Like, you can't just go somewhere and push a button and, like, make a blog because yeah. you need to register the domain, get the certificate, set up the software. But at the same time, that can be fun, and that can also be something you can blog about. Additionally, when your blog goes down, that's interesting. My blog was down a couple of days ago for, like, four hours, and I went and debugged it. And while I was debugging it, I took lots of screenshots. Just because I didn't know, I was like, I don't know, this is really interesting. Why is this happening? Screenshot, 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 screenshot. And then I'll write a blog post about why my blog was down. Just by looking at the screenshots. So my, my advice for newbies who want a blog is, are you doing it just to write? If so, just put a blog up. But if you're doing it to learn, then put the blog up, build it, learn about registering a domain, learn about DNS, learn about your MySQL and WordPress or whatever and get that experience and keep the blog running. If the blog goes down, document why it went down and then write about that. And it's a self kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. You can blog about pretty much any mistake or any problem you've encountered. Yeah, you can. And I think that it's, it's scary though, isn't it? To yeah. blog about, I made a mistake and here's how I, cause then some mean person will come out and say, uh, why did you make that stupid mistake? Yeah, like you're not a real programmer. You're not a real programmer, exactly. Yeah, and I say block and move on. So why did you say except Medium? Because I host my blog. <laughs> so Medium is fine, but the problem with things like Medium is I feel that they are what are called walled gardens, mm. where it's beautiful and it's lovely, but there's a wall around it and you need a membership to get in. And now Medium has an app and you know how you see a cool Medium post and then you go there and they ask you to log in? Yes. And it's like, I don't really want to be your friend like that, Medium. Like, are you going to be a part of the open web? Are you going to make it so I can actually look at this with an HTTP get? Or are you going to make it so I visit and you go, hey, it's, it's us, Medium. Um, we see that you come here a lot. You really need to log in. That's not the open web. That's not appropriate. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I've been, I'm thinking of uh, building my own blog on my website. So. Yeah. See, that's fun. Like, my podcast site is not that complicated. Like, it looks pretty good, but if you look at the code, it's basically a for loop, and the database is a JSON file. Oh, wow. I don't even have a database. I just literally have a JSON file, and I for loop over the JSON file to put the archives out. Um, and it scales really great, right? There's no database. And I cache it and I learn about things like Let's Encrypt. I set up my, my, SS, my SSH, my SSL certificate rather. Um, so any opportunity to learn, you can just do the busy work of putting together a website and that's a way to learn. That's true, that's true. So you've been teaching in different forms for a while. You feel like teaching has helped you become a better programmer? Totally. Um, I think to make it even more generic, I would say if you really want to understand something, 
teach it to somebody. Even if you think you understand something, just turning around, turning it around in your brain and putting it back out in your mouth, you will learn more about it yourself. And I really like teaching the basics because every time I teach the basics, I feel I learn more about the basics. Yeah. You know, I, I get better at teaching the basics. So uh, also providing someone with a really good base of the pyramid is a really good way to, to augment your skills. Just sit down and describe DNS to somebody or explain HTTP. You'll learn more about it. And it also forces you to do research. That's true. Just like blogging. Like if you have to blog about a topic, you have to actually do research to explain to your readers what you're even talking about. Exactly. So I know you were also a professor. How, how was that experience? That was hard because when you're a professor, you, uh, I was an adjunct professor at a state school. They don't let you necessarily teach only what you want to teach, right? You, you have to teach to the curriculum. So I didn't really enjoy that as much because the dean would tell me exactly what he wanted me to teach. And then they would sit in the room and judge me from uh -huh. afar and tell me that this is not, you should teach this way, you should teach that way. You know, make everybody use Notepad because autocomplete will rot their brains. So I, I prefer independent teaching than, uh, than being a professor. Yeah, that's true. Teaching can be, uh, can be a bit hard. Okay, so you do a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, can you tell me why you do a lot of those? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what a lot is. Like maybe once or twice a month, I go and talk to somebody about something but only if I'm like already in the neighborhood, you know, like <laughs> I was in Austin for a conference and then there was a place that I could speak at nearby and it only took one day on the weekend. So I took the weekend. Um, sometimes I'll take time off work, like vacation day one day or take a Friday and I'll talk at like a user group. Yeah. Um, it's all part of the, what we talked about a second ago, which was teaching something, learning how to tell the story, learning how to make an analogy can make you a better developer. Yes. But I also really like the sense of empowering other people. So I always make it so if I give a talk, the person could then take my talk and give it themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you came to one of my talks and you'd come up later and say, hey, can I have your code? Can I have your PowerPoint? Then you can go to your work or to your local user group or a meetup and do the same talk and make it yours, make it your special talk, your own kind of talk, then someone would see you give the talk and say, hey, can I do a talk like yours? And then it's a, it's a whole thing. It's like a big happy tree of people out there teaching each other. Lifts, it lifts everyone. Yeah, that's a good goal to have for speaking. Um, so you also do podcasts, uh, about three podcasts. What, what are they about? Well, uh, my main podcast is called Hansel Minutes. Um, it's called Hansel Minutes because my last name, of course, is Hanselman, and I'm not very good at estimating. So people at work would tease me. I would say, how many minutes, you know, how many minutes will this take? Like, oh, about 30 minutes to do this code. And they would say, is that Hansel Minutes or is that real minutes? Because they know that I'm, you know, I have my own time and I'm not very good at that. Hansel Minutes is like an hour. So, oh. <laughs> so Hansel Minutes was made to have a nice, tight 30-minute podcast about technology. I think too many podcasts are just too many people chatting. I don't want to listen to people chat for 
90 minutes. Let's give, give me the meat. Yeah. So Hansel Minutes was for the meat. And then I've got um, one called uh, This Developer's Life that we only do a couple times a year. That's about stories of developers. And then I've got a show called Azure Friday. That's actually a video podcast where I teach people about the cloud. And then a while mm-hmm. back, I had another one on pop culture, but I've only got so much time in the day to have podcasts. They're fun, though. Don't you enjoy podcasting? You get to meet cool people. Yeah, you can meet different people and learn their stories. I like it. So what programming languages do you use? In my daily life, I would say C Sharp, JavaScript slash TypeScript, uh, sometimes a little Python. Um, While Node is not a programming language, I kind of think of Node and JavaScript being kind of separate things, Uh, a little bit of Node. So yeah, I would primarily C Sharp. C Sharp lets me do everything everywhere. You know, it's open source. It runs on every operating system. So it works pretty well. Yeah, I've been wanting to get uh, more involved in C Sharp. I did a little bit of C++ in college. Yeah, see, and this is the thing, right? It's close enough because it's got the curly braces. And then you don't have to worry about memory. Because in C++, they're always making us worry about our memory management. And in C Sharp, you don't have to do that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you participate in a lot of open source. How did you get involved in that? Wow, that was a long time ago. I just, open source just kind of made sense where it always felt like big parts of software systems should be free. Mm-hmm. You know, I, like you should pay for the special sauce, but I don't think you should pay for the basics. So I was just always saying, oh, I made some code. I want to share it. And I think it's the same personality type that makes someone want to be a teacher. Yeah. People who do open source want to share. They're sharing type people. Hey, look, I made this. Maybe you can use this and build with it. That kind of thing. So, um, I was just working at this bank and I was making cool stuff. And I was like, you know, someone else could benefit from this. So I put it out there and then it just grows from there. And then you discover there's a whole community out there of people, you know, helping each other. I think the problem right now with open source is that some people feel that they are entitled. Hey, you know, you made this open source project and it doesn't work. So I know you made it for free and I never paid you. Get up and fix this bug for me. Yeah, that's why a lot of people are hesitant about uh, making open source projects. Yeah, exactly. This is, and, and to have that feeling of like, wow, okay, now a stranger is calling me and demanding that I help them with their project. They haven't helped, they haven't paid, and, and they feel entitled or they, they want support and they forget that we have lives. You know, it's, it's, yeah. we're doing this as a volunteer. Why are you demanding my help? It's got to be friendly, and we have to appreciate that sometimes you should pay for support. Yeah, that's true. So how did, uh, how was open source a few decades ago? Because I know there probably wasn't GitHub, so how did people open source yeah. the project? It was pretty messy, I would say. We had, we didn't have Git, we didn't have GitHub, we had CVS, so I forgot what the something version system, I forgot what the C stands for. We had SVN, Subversion, and we would email diff files around. So you would run a diff and see, and then make a file that's just a list of like plus and then the line and then minus and then the line number. And I would email that to you in a mailing list. And then you would apply the diff to your code and then check it into the central repository. 
it was pretty tedious. Definitely yeah. Git was an improvement. Yeah, sounds complicated. I use SVN for one college class. So. See, so you know, it's no fun, is it? It wasn't. So how do you pick which OS projects to participate in? Do you have a criteria? You mean like which open source project that I care about and I want to spend yeah. time with? Um, I think if they, if they look welcoming or they looked friendly. Mm -hmm. um, I also went and I went with my friend and we made a website called First Timers Only. FirstTimersOnly.com. And we made a website that links to all of the different websites that um, have convenient first-timer contributions. Mm. This is what's called kind of like up, up for grabs. So if I go to a website and it's like, oh, here's this cool open source project, and here are the issues that are open, and it says good first project or friendly for newbies, then I'm thinking, oh, this is nice. They actually set aside bugs that they've identified as easier bugs that I could potentially learn on, right? I also like ones that are really, really um, well organized. One of my favorite um, open source projects is called Octoprint, O-C-T-O print. It's basically a web interface to 3D printers. And the, the woman who runs it is so organized. It's just amazing. And when you get to her, her site, um, it's, uh, and you go to the issues, it's extremely friendly. She uses lots of emoticons and she has great read me. And when you go to the issues, everything's categorized and you say, this is a well-run project. And I actually, I use Octoprint as like my, my, my most favorite open source project to say, this is how you run a clean, tight ship. You know, yeah. um, I can look at the issues here and see, exactly what she wants. I can say this is a friendly project. The people here are kind. No one's mean to each other. There's lots of screenshots, lots of great documentation. And documentation is a great way to get started in open source, don't you think? Yeah, it is. I, uh, most of the ways I've been contributing to open source is documenting, fixing the documentation, typos, or any way they like to be explained better. Don't you think that's important? But I think sometimes people who make, who do that work, they, they don't think it's as important as it is. They like put themselves down and they say, well, you know, I just, I did a little documentation. Yeah. Documentation is fundamental. It is. Super important. Especially for people who are not familiar with that project. Mm -hmm. they need to be able to understand where this project is going, how to use it. Exactly. <laughs> Because nobody will use it if they just see code and they don't understand what's happening. Well, I, I gave some feedback to someone on their open source project recently. I just suggested that they add a little screenshot in the README. It mm -hmm. sounds like a silly recommendation, but I mean, when I go to a project, I want a screenshot. Like, what is this thing? What does it do? And the little polish to documentation, like you said, a, checking a spelling. That stuff matters, and it makes people feel more friendly about the project and more likely to help. Yeah, that's true. Um, I also noticed you do a lot of side projects. Are those, are those open source also? Yeah, I basically open source everything, even stupid stuff. Like, I have a lot of stupid open source projects. I mean, I wouldn't even call them projects. I would say they are prototypes or just stuff that I'm doing. Um, the only thing I haven't open sourced yet is my... Um, my podcast website, but only because I'd prefer people not steal my CSS. 
because mm-hmm. like I pay the designer for the CSS. Oh yeah. So I'm trying to figure out maybe I could release the code with a different theme, you know. But um, I, I wouldn't say I do like a lot of giant open source projects. It's mostly just every time I do a side thing, I make a repository because somebody else might want to use it. But it's also a good place to store my stuff. And now, of course, on GitHub, you can have private repositories for free. Yeah, that's really awesome. I like when they uh, announce that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you also work on a lot of projects involving diabetes. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do that? Well, because I'm diabetic and I'm a type one diabetic, so I have an insulin pump. I, um, diabetics who become diabetic, who are also engineers, always try to solve it with code. Like every diabetic I've ever met is like, oh, this sucks. How am I going to fix this? And then they open up like Microsoft Excel and try to figure out if Microsoft Excel will let them solve that problem. You know, like how can I use this? How can I use my engineering brain to fix this issue, whatever the issue is? You know, so anytime I can try to solve, uh, you know, solve my diabetes issues with code, then it's a good thing. Yeah, definitely sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. So what misconceptions do you think most people have about programming? Well, I was watching this show. um, It's this stupid show on TV called Taken. It's like that Liam Neeson movie. Uh, yeah, kidnapped. All right, so every, every week somebody else gets kidnapped, right? Yeah. Um, and then they use a computer to find the person, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always like, ah, oh, hang on, let me get the satellite. Okay, I've got the satellite. Okay, let me, let me hack into the satellite. Okay, I've hacked in. It's like nothing takes that long. Like I can't even compile my project in the time it took you to hack into the, the NASA satellite and then, you know, and then also where they take like a graphic and like a, like a screenshot of yeah. like a really bad license plate, mm-hmm. you go enhance and it goes and then suddenly it's like a 4k high definition shot. People think that programming is really, really fast, really glamorous and really easy when you know it. Uh, there was one another TV show where they had two programmers on one keyboard and, and the late remember and the one the ladies on the left side and the guys on the right side and they're just like <laughs> and it's like no that's not how it works and and doesn't don't you think the graphics are always way cooler like yeah, being in visual studio is not as cool as having four green holographic monitors you know stacked up in front of you yeah yeah it always like seems like programmers just oh just you know what to write you don't have any errors Oh, yeah. No one ever Googles or goes on Stack Overflow when they're programming on TV. That's true. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, false realities of programming on TV. Absolutely. So I know you involved in different cultures, like, uh, I think, Zulu? Uh, my, wife, my wife speaks Zulu, and her family is all from, from Zimbabwe. She speaks actually Ndebele, but Zulu is the, the, the essence of their language. It's the root language. So how do you uh, feel that being involved in different languages has helped your career or programming? Well, I think speaking in any additional language is a useful thing, whether it's JavaScript and C Sharp or if it's English and French. Right, because I think it all comes down to empathy, 
do yeah. you understand the perspective of the other side? Do you understand the person that you're talking to? It's also a reminder of, of humans and humanity, you know? So picking a little bit up of someone's language tells you that you care about them and that you, you respect their perspective as mm -hmm. opposed to speak English, write, write Java. You know, you get everyone in line and doing the same thing is no fun. That's true. Plus diversity makes life more interesting. Yeah, definitely does. Diversity, like you said, diversity of thoughts, of uh, culture. And culture, that. age, background. I mean, while it would not be ideal to have a project that was just like three 40-year-old white guys, one could be Russian, one could be from South America, one could be a veteran, one could be disabled. Like there's a lot of diversity that we see and there's a lot of diversity that we don't see people's brains, people's backgrounds, people's upbringing. Yeah. Um, so what's the biggest thing you want to achieve with your career? I know that's kind of a big question. but ah, You know, someone asked me about my career. I stopped thinking about things in terms of career. You know, for me, it's about being happy, being safe, having food, and helping as many people as I can. You know, like... Is, I think that when I was, the fact that I don't have to think about the rent most months and I don't have to think about food. I know it sounds sex silly to say that, but tech provides us with enough money that for the most part, if you're doing okay in tech, yeah. you, I can go to Chipotle whenever I want to. You know what I mean? And when I was poor, that was not the case. Like, what am I going to eat today? So I've already achieved that. So now I want to achieve it for other people. I want tech and a bridge into tech to have as many other people feel that same way that I feel. Yeah, that's definitely an awesome uh, goal to have. Thank you. So what other things do you do for fun apart from tech? Movies, anything with a superhero. We're going to go see Miss Marvel, or Captain Marvel rather, later this week. Uh, mostly hanging out with my kids. Everything in tech exists so that I might um, hang out with my family more. That's the goal. As soon as I get off the podcast with you, I'm going to go and take my wife to lunch and have a long lunch. Yeah. That's, that's the goal, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, uh, final question. Do you have any advice for people learning to code? I would say get get out there, get outside, talk to people, get into the community. Uh, I know it can be scary. I know that it can be threatening, but uh, maybe you agree. Get on Twitter, find your people. Yeah. Whoever your people are, they're out there. You just need to find them and find your tribe and collect. I like to collect people like Pokemon and share them with my friends so that they know that this is a cool person and that this person's working on cool stuff. So the first step in learning to code is learning about the community and getting involved. And um, I actually, I, I did a video that you can check out that's at getinvolvedintech.com. It's uh, totally free. It's like a, a documentary film yeah. about how to get on user groups and Stack Overflow and blogging and Twitter and GitHub and conferences and managing your kind of online life. So the way that you learn to code is first to get involved. And I really appreciate the code newbies community 
Code Newbies is just glorious and wonderful. They have a great conference that's going to be this July that everyone should go to called Codeland. If you can afford it or if you can get, they have sponsorships, uh, try to get to, uh, to the Code Newbies conference or do the Code Newbies uh, every Wednesday. They have a Twitter chat that you can participate in as well. Yeah. I like the uh, Code Newbies uh, community. It's really welcoming. Very welcoming. And uh, I'll share all those links you mentioned in the podcast. And it's true, our community is very important. I wish I, when I started the program, I wish I knew more about the uh, tech community because I didn't <laughs> until I basically was getting out of college. So mm. it's been interesting to, to be able to interact with uh, different programmers of different backgrounds. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for joining. <laughs>